So the scriptures uh, reading this morning is found in Luke chapter 20. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. You can follow along as I read. If you don't have a Bible, then there's one that's uh, in the chair racks, a blue Bible that uh, you can find this passage on page 1118, 1118. We're actually going to be reading two passages uh, from chapter 20, first verses 1 to 8 and then verses 20 to 26. In the middle is a parable that I actually preached on a couple of years ago, um, and we're going to skip that and kind of see the flow of the argument uh, between verses 1 to 8 and then picking up after the, after the parable. So let me invite you to stand, if you're able, as I read this out loud. And then when I'm finished, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven... He'll say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, just break there. We're going to stop and skip to the next. As you might imagine, this is a bit infuriating to the Jewish leaders at this point. But let me just, let me just, just to make this point clear, that's why Jesus then tells the parable the story that we're not going to read, but that only solidifies their anger at Jesus, only intensifies their desire to kill him. So then, verse 20, picking up, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, this is the spies asking him, teacher, We know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able to and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So attending a number of um, Christmas parties and other gatherings over the last uh, month reminded me of this, and we sort of hinted at this theme last week when we looked at Jesus' entry into uh, into the city of Jerusalem and his clearing out of the temple. Um, But it reminded me, when I was a kid uh, and we would have people over for a party, uh, there were always a few rooms that were were off limits to the the party guests, right? No guests were allowed in, in certain rooms. Now, why was that, do you think? Well, that was because those rooms were the rooms where we put all the stuff that was in the rest of the house that we were cleaning up so that people could come over and, and visit. And so they were, not, they were not allowed as rooms for our guests. Now imagine for a minute someone uh, on the day of, uh, of the party that we were hosting uh, opening the basement door. And the basement was sometimes one of those rooms where the basement's off limits, kids. Okay, remember no one in the basement, right? Because we would put our stuff in the basement. Imagine someone coming in, day of the party, <clears throat> marching down the basement steps and saying, I think we're going to have the party here. 
I think this is a better place for the party. I mean, it's a mess. Let's clean it out, but we're going to have the party here. Now, if you're an outside observer, you don't know my parents, you don't know anything about this guy, you will conclude one of two things, right? Either it's an extremely rude guest with no right to do what he's doing, or he's not really a guest, but he's one of my parents. He's the true owner of the house going downstairs and saying, no, you know what? This room's a mess, but we're going to have the party here. That's sort of what's happening to Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. Right? Last week we saw the first thing he did when he got into Jerusalem was he went to the temple, marched into the outer courts and said, this is a mess. We've got to clean this up. And Jesus proceeded to drive out the dishonest money changers and all those who were selling animals for sacrifice. He clears them out. He sets up shop and he starts teaching. That's what Jesus did. And you could conclude, like the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people, that this guy is the rudest temple guest ever. Right? What gives him the right? What was he thinking? Well, he obviously thinks that this is his house. That he has a right to come and clean up and start, and start teaching right there. Right? This is where we're going to have the party, he says. I mean, if it's a mess, we've got to clean it up, but this is where we're going to have the party. Now, this is what infuriates the religious leaders. Who does this guy think he is? Claiming the authority to take control of the temple and turn it into his soapbox? Right? And so they commit to bring him down. And, and, and they do that because they don't really believe that he owns the house. They dispute his authority. So, what, so thus begins this series of attempts to trap Jesus, the first two of which we, we just read and we'll look at this morning, to trap Jesus. And we see how Jesus responds, directly addressing and responding to these challenges to his authority, and, and, by, and by inference, how we are to respond to his authority. Now, there's some summary points in the, in the bulletin, but there's three things I think we need to do as we encounter Jesus' authority. First, we need to submit to his religious authority. That's specifically what's being challenged in verses 1 to 8. And second, we need to recognize his political authority. That's specifically what's being challenged and addressed in verses 20 to 26. Now, in both of these, then, point number three, and overarching everything that Jesus is doing very intentionally while he's in the city of Jerusalem in this last week of his earthly life, we need to trust in his sacrificial authority. All right, so those are the three points. But here's the question for us as, as, we, as we think about it. Because there's some interesting kind of, you know, rhetorical things that happen here. And Jesus, you know, they kind of tra- try to trap Jesus. And Jesus kind of zings them back. And it's fun. And, it's, and you could just kind of get caught in that and say, yeah, Jesus, get him get him. But here's the question for us as it relates to this. Does Jesus have authority over us? Again, picking up on the theme we started last week, but does he have access to all of our rooms? Or, like this unlikely coalition of leaders in opposition to Jesus, when we encounter his religious authority, do we challenge it? When we come up to his political authority, do we question it? And when we come to understand or see his sacrificial authority, do we neglect it? Let's look at each of them. First, let's look at this religious authority. Back to the text. First challenge to Jesus comes in verses 1 to 8. Like I said, he was teaching in the temple courts, right? It doesn't say specifically what the content was for his teaching. It just says that he was preaching and teaching the gospel, which of course means good news. And then it says, up come the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, right? Or likely a delegation of these, of these specific groups. And they ask him, verse 2, tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who it is that gave you this authority. And in a sense, the question is directly related to the things that Jesus has has been doing in the temple. What gives you the right to treat the temple like you own the place? 
But the temple cleansing is is probably only one of many series of things that they had in mind. Jesus had been making the religious leaders mad by claiming religious authority throughout his ministry. He does it all the time, asserts his authority. He hands down blessings. He hands down cursing. He instructs. He teaches. He calls people to follow him. And understandably, this kind of behavior made the religious leaders, the, one who thought, the ones who thought they had authority, it makes them mad. So they're challenging him here. Now let's stop right here and ask ourselves, <clears throat> does Jesus' claim of authority in our lives, does that sometimes make us mad? Maybe not outwardly or, or obviously, but do we, do we bristle at it? Right? Think of our lives, like the temple at your house or, or, or your house or when you're hosting a party, and consider, is Jesus just a guest in your house? A welcome guest, maybe. You know, Jesus, come on in. Is he a welcome guest or is he the owner? Is he allowed in all the rooms? Or even not above being allowed in all the rooms, is he allowed to rearrange the rooms, tell you where things need to, to go when the decor doesn't fit, when it doesn't match, when it needs updating, when there's a mess that needs to be cleaned up? Or do you rebel against that? The religious leaders rebel against that. Honestly, they knew the answer that Jesus would, would give to the question, right? If you read the account of Luke up to now, it's pretty clear who Jesus thinks he is. Right? Luke chapter 1, he's the son of the Most High. Luke chapter 2, he's the Christ. Luke chapter 4, he's the Holy One of God. Luke chapter 5, he calls himself the Son of Man, a clear messianic reference. Luke chapter 18, the promised son of David. Luke chapter 19, Israel's rightful king. That's what we looked at last week. Right? That's who Jesus is claiming to be. It isn't as if the Jewish leaders didn't know that. They knew that. That's what made him mad. That's what they're rebelling against. And they want him to answer the question that they ask him in such a way that he would incriminate himself. So that once and all, in front of an official delegation now of all the religious leaders, they could charge Jesus with blasphemy for claiming to be God. That's why Jesus answers the way that he does. By refusing to fall into their trap. He answers their question with a question. He says, <clears throat> let's talk about this. He says, tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from man? Now, the John he's referring to is the one that we know as John the Baptist. And when Jesus asked them to identify the origin of John's baptism, he's referring to more than just the ceremonial act of washing that John did with people as they repented of their sins. He's talking, John did that, but he's talking about more than that. He's talking about John's whole ministry, John's whole message. Was John's ministry from God or was it from men? That's what he's asking. And this is how we know that Jesus isn't just deflecting the question because John's message, his ministry, was clear as it comes to the identity of Jesus. The Apostle John, different John, writes in his gospel account and records the sworn testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 34, John the Baptist says, I have seen and I testify that this, talking about Jesus, is the Son of God. Now, John had points where he doubted, was a little unsure or whatever, but that was, John's, that was John's clear message about who Jesus was. John said that Jesus was God. In other words, John was declaring that Jesus' authority was self-derived. It didn't come from any other source. He was his own source of authority. Now, it might seem like Jesus is kind of being cagey, but by answering the question of the religious leaders with this question, it's actually brilliant. He doesn't fall into the trap. Instead, by bringing John the Baptist into the conversation, he actually sets the trap for them, and they know it. When he asks the question of them, he knows they're stuck, right? So that's why they do this little huddle thing, like off to the side. Come here, guys. Let's talk about it. How are we going to answer this? 
right? And, that's, and, and, and they've got two options. First option is John's baptism from heaven. In other words, is John's ministry, is his message, is it from, is it from God? I don't really want to admit that because if they do, then they'd be admitting that they should have listened to John, admitting that they should have repented of their own religious self-righteousness, that they should have been, begun to follow Jesus too. No, they don't want to do that. They don't want to admit that they're wrong. Second option is John's baptism from men. In other words, John's ministry is not from God. Well, this is what they like to say. It's what they actually believe, but they know this is too dangerous to say because John, even after his death, was still very popular. And slandering someone who the crowds considered to be a prophet of God might mean that the crowds would turn on them. And so because they cared more about preserving their own lives and whatever religious influence they thought they had, they couldn't say that either. And so what do they do? Jesus asks them about the identi- to identify the origin of, of John's message, and they just, they just went out. They, they lie. Say, ah, uh, we don't know. We don't know. And this pretending not to know itself is indicting of them, right? If the collected religious leaders of Judaism couldn't judge the validity of a prophet, who could? That was their job, to lead the people. Is this a prophet or is this a false prophet? And when they're, and when they're given the question, is, was John a real prophet? Was his message real or not? They just abdicate on their responsibility as leaders of the people. We don't know. We don't know where he was from. And Jesus responds by saying, well, then neither am I going to tell you by what authority I do these things. Basically saying, you already know the answer. You just don't like it. Now, Jesus is not being childish here. He's simply exposing their true motives, right? Challenging their religious authority. He's saying, look, you already know the answer. That's not the issue. The issue is, is not whether or not you know what I claim. It's whether you will submit yourself to it. Now, if you're sitting here this morning, even if all that you have ever heard about Jesus is what I just told you, right? Then the issue is not whether or not you know that Jesus is claiming religious authority. He does. He is. Even if all you knew about Jesus was what I just told you, you know that that's exactly what he's claiming. The issue is not whether or not you know what he claims. The issue is whether or not you will submit yourself to it, right? So what does that mean, to submit yourself to it? Well, fair question. Well, if you're not, if you're not, for someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus, well, then submitting to his religious authority means recognizing first that you're not doing that currently, and then to repent of that, to, to confess that as sin, to place yourself under his, his rule. Okay, you say, but I've been a Christian for a very long time. Right? Well, the question for you, what does that mean, isn't actually much different, though the application in, in someone who has been following Jesus for a long time can be a little bit more specific. All right, let me phrase it like this to keep the metaphor that we've been talking about. Are you willing to take whatever room in your house that you use to keep all the junk, right, where the guests come over, to take that room and acknowledge that Jesus has the right to enter and remodel that room? Right? I don't know what your rooms are, the rooms that you use to hide the junk. It could be your bedroom where you hide all the junk about your marriage could be your office where you keep track of and you manage all your finances and you keep, your, keep all the junk about how you, how you use your resources. could be your rec room where you try to create your own happiness with television or Xboxes or whatever. Right? Whatever, you room, whatever room you use to keep your junk, will you open that room to Jesus? Will you submit to his religious authority? That's the starting point. So, point number one, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, they fail to trap Jesus with this question about his religious authority. And so after Jesus aggravates them a little bit more by telling them the parable of the tenants, then they try a question about political authority. Philip Ryken 
uh, wrote, if you want to start a good argument, start talking about religion or politics, either one. But if you want to start a war, then talk about how your religion informs your politics. And that's what it's come to for the leaders now. It's time for them to go nuclear, right? The, 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 more, the, the, more internal, <laughs> the more internal approach just among us, 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 us Jewish people, that didn't work, right? Time to bring Caesar into the discussion, into the dispute. So they go to Jesus again, and this time it's war. So they send spies to ask Jesus another question. And the political goal is very clear here, right? They want to catch Jesus in saying something that would get him in trouble with the Roman governor so they can deliver him up it says, to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. See, the religious authorities, they've now been shown to be ineffective, worthless. So they're going to see if they can manipulate civil authority to get what they want. And you have to give them credit here. Not only do they go to Jesus all smooth-like, right? Jesus, you're so great. You're so smart. You see how they start with him? They're just buttering him up, man. Right? We need you, right? But not only do they come kind of like with that smooth-like approach, they ask him an extremely sophisticated question. It's simple, but it's extremely sophisticated. They come and say, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, this is a dilemma that's being posed to Jesus, right? They're asking him if it's right, in other words, if it's it's in accordance with God's law to pay taxes to the Roman emperor or not. And here's the dilemma, right? If Jesus answers that it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, then he risks losing the favor of the people. Luke actually uses a more technical term in the Greek for the word tribute, right? They're not, they're not asking about taxes in general. They're specifically talking, the commentators say, about the poll tax. And the poll tax was hated by the Jews because it was a personal tax. It wasn't a duty that was leveled on, on commerce or travel. It was just a very clear reminder of Roman authority, right? Because you exist in my kingdom, you pay this tax. It was a tax that was paid to Caesar as tribute to his status as the emperor. So there's the danger for Jesus answering the question, right? But if Jesus says no, right, he risks being reported to the Roman emperor for inciting rebellion. And if there's one thing that the Romans did not like in their occupied territories, it was rebellion. So the trap is very well set here. All right, but check Jesus out. He knows they're trying to trap him, and he's not at all flustered by the hard question. He knows exactly what to do. He says, okay, who's got a denarius? Now, denarius was a Roman coin in that day that was about equal to a day's wages, right, for the common laborer, right, a day's pay for a common laborer. And obviously, someone had a denarius, pulls it out, and Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. And that was true. The front of the Roman coin had an image of Caesar. At the time, it would have been Tiberius, the adopted son of Caesar Augustus. And the inscription on the coin would have read, in abbreviated form, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Right? That would have been the coin. Then, with this little exchange that they have with each other, Jesus answers their question about the legality of paying the poll tax by saying, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to, God's, to God the things that are God's. It's one of the most famous, one of the most often quoted statements of Jesus. What's Jesus saying, though? What are the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God's? Well, when he says, render to Caesar, most narrowly what Jesus is saying is that that his followers have an obligation to pay the Roman tax. Caesar's face is on the coin. Pay the coin to Caesar. 
right? But more broadly, he's saying that as much as possible, Christians have an obligation to live as good and obedient citizens, even under a government that doesn't share, or a government perhaps at times that is even hostile to their faith. Think how extraordinary that is, right? As hostile as you might think America has becoming, has become, this is Rome, right? You think your tax dollars sometimes go to fund things that you don't agree with, right? It's nothing compared to the case that a follower of God in the first century could have made for not paying his taxes. Jesus is saying that Caesar is owed the respect that is his due. And if you want further elaboration, Paul in Romans 13, Peter in 1 Peter 2, they explain it further. Now, This respect for Caesar's authority was not absolute. We'll see that in a minute. But he is saying something, Jesus is saying something that would have been extraordinary to the listener. That while Caesar's authority was not absolute, Caesar's authority was legitimate. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then he says something equally extraordinary for a different reason. And to God the things that are God's. Right? Because if give to Caesar would have been extraordinary for the Jewish ear to hear, right? Jarring. Give to C- the Jewish ear would have heard give to Caesar as just completely jarring, right? Give to God would be the same extraordinary jarring as, as it would be for the Jews hearing give to Caesar. It would have been the same extraordinary uh, statement to the Roman ear, right? Jesus had established Caesar's legitimacy, but what he does here is he places the son of the divine Augustus underneath the son of God, Because ultimately, what belongs to God? Everything. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. That's what it says in Romans 11. See, the denarius had Caesar's image, but every human being bears God's image. So Caesar bears no ultimate authority. It's all derived. That's what Paul says in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Give to God what is God's. That's Jesus' answer. And it highlights the fact that Jesus is the only one who really has the right to answer this question in the first place. The spies bring the question to him as a trap. They've got sinister motives. But little do they realize that they're actually coming to the right guy to ask the question. Because asking the question of anyone else is really just asking an opinion. Asking the question of Jesus, though, is bringing the issue to the one who has the political authority to answer the question. It forces us to recognize his position of ultimate authority, even over the politics and the civil affairs of the day. Now, it doesn't settle every question about where the line should be drawn in every question you might have about the intersection of of faith and politics, but it does keep us from two possible errors on two possible extremes. The first error is thinking that Caesar is our Savior. Now, it might seem obvious when I state it like that, but interestingly, sometimes that's a trap that even well-meaning Christians can think sometimes. They think that if 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 Christians just elected the right Christian leaders and passed the right Christian laws, that we'd be able to fix the hearts and soul of America. That's just not so, right? Now, laws matter. The views and character of our leaders matter, but Jesus didn't come to throw the empire, set up an alternative state. He could have, As we just established, he's the one who would have had the authority to do that, but he didn't. That's why he said give to Caesar. Now, the second error, though, that other people make, equally dangerous, is to say that the influence of Jesus has no place in 
public life. It goes like this. It says, yeah, your religion is private. Just keep it to yourself. Uh, you can have it, but, but it has no bearing on how you do your job, educate your children, pursue your career, treat your employees, etc. Right? But if we give to God what is God's, then we can't do that. Right? Because Jesus is Lord over politics, business, education, everything. Right? Jesus is the Lord of heaven. So we must submit to his religious authority. He's the Lord of earth, so we must recognize his political authority. But you know, we're not really done. Because we have to see and to trust all of this in the context of the week, in the, re- in the recognition in the context of his sacrificial authority. The delegation of religious leaders challenging Jesus here were challenging his religious authority, but they were done. They were challenging his political authority, but they were done, right? Jesus, had, he, had, he had kind of very deftly kind of fended off those arguments. And you might be tempted to think that Jesus had won. He had won the debate. But while he did, he proved, he proved his religious authority, demonstrated his, his political authority. The most important thing that we need to do is trust his sacrificial authority. Now, what, what, what does that mean? Why would I use that term? Maybe you think I'm just, I'm just kind of making that up because it allows me to sort of get to the, you know, get to the punchline. No, 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 actually, it, this, is, it, this, is, this is very biblical. Follow me here. See, Jesus doesn't just win the victory by out-debating his opponents. If he could do that, then he would have won by this point. His victory does not come by embarrassing the the Jewish leaders. If he could do that, then he would have done that by this point. They aren't his real enemy, though. His real enemy is death. Remember the message of John the Baptist when he first saw Jesus. Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb whose sacrificial death defeats sin. That's how the victory comes. But what Jesus is demonstrating here in all of these encounters with the religious leaders, right, and we'll look at another one next week, (laughs) what he's demonstrating here is that his sacrificial death that he needs to experience, that has been a part of his mission from the very beginning, that that sacrificial death does not happen until he says so. That's his sacrificial authority. They try to catch him, they try to trap him, right, but they can't because Jesus is completely unable to be trapped until he allows it. He is in absolute control of this last week of his life. That's what I want you to see. As we go through this last week of his life over the next couple of months, right, you need to see Jesus' sacrificial authority. He will lay down his life when the time is right and not before. They've come to trap him, but it's not today. It is not this day. Jesus has full authority over his sacrifice. He's always had it. In John chapter 10, Jesus talked about his sacrificial death in his public ministry, and he said, no one takes it from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. You see? He's got religious authority. He's got political authority, but that's not why he's in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem to exercise at the perfect time his sacrificial authority. He is the only one with the authority to lay down his life. That's why he's here, to be a willing sacrifice. And we absolutely need him to be. Several years ago, a teenager named uh, Aitaziz Hassan was living in a remote region of Pakistan where Shia and Sunni Muslims are frequently targeting one another with, with violence, fighting among themselves. Well, one Monday... Aitaziz was arriving at his school with his cousin and a group of his friends when they noticed a 
a young man dressed in a school uniform but looking out of place as he approached the school. Now, just inside the school's entrance, there were more than 1,500 students who were gathering for the morning assembly. And Ataziz and his friends knew why the young man was there. But they had very different reactions. His friends pleaded with Aitaziz not to confront the man, and they backed off. But Aitaziz reportedly told them, I'm going to stop him. He's going to school to kill my friends. The problem is, though, there really is no safe way to stop a suicide bomber. Aitaziz confronted the young man, tackled him, wrapped his body around the bombers, as 13 pounds of explosives detonated. Aitaziz was killed instantly, but his actions literally saved hundreds of lives. Jesus was in Jerusalem because he recognized the true enemy when he saw it. It wasn't the religious leaders. Those guys could be debated with logic. They could be defeated with sharp debating skills. Jesus' true enemy was death, the consequence of our rebellion against God. And there is no safe way to confront that enemy. His friends urged him to do something else, that there must be another way. They told him not to go. But Jesus, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus, while we were still in rebellion against him, Jesus chose differently. He saw death, he saw death coming, and he said, I will not let it kill my friends. And he declared his sacrificial authority by choosing to wrap his arms around death, and he willingly gave his life for ours. I told you earlier that the starting point of coming to Jesus was to to turn away from your sin, to turn to him. Well, this is what you are specifically to do when you turn to Jesus. You trust in that sacrifice as your only hope for the defeat of death. And if you're someone who has considered yourself a Christian for a long time, but if you're struggling to give one of those rooms in your house over to Jesus, I want you to see that you have no more and could have no more loving, trustworthy owner than Jesus. Jesus demands all of your life, but he deserves all of your life, and he can be trusted with all of your life because he gave all of his. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be the sacrifice that we needed. And Lord, let us not to be so concerned with the debating and the rhetorical skills of Jesus that he clearly possessed that we missed the ultimate point, that he came to die, and he came to die for us, for me. Lord, I pray that we would trust that sacrifice, that we would see in it the power to to change, and we would see in it the ultimate worth of the one who then demands authority in our lives. Allow us, Lord, to bow to that authority and to go forth from this place changed because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.